broadcasting from the campus of Lynn Benton Community College. We are the Mid-Valley STEM CTE Hub. I'm your host, Casey, and this, this is Closing the Gap. Welcome back, listeners. Today on Closing the Gap, our guest is Mindy Crandall, professor of forest management and policy at Oregon State University. Friend of the show and Oregon's high school journalist of the year, Tori Thorpe, will be hosting this interview. So sit back and enjoy the show. Um, so hi, Mindy. Uh, can you describe for us your educational training and background? Sure. It's nice to be here. Uh, so my, I grew up in the Oregon Coast Range here, and actually when I, when I first started college, I actually started at Lane Community College down in Eugene. I wasn't quite ready to go full-time to a regular college. It took me a little while to find my path, so to speak. Uh, from then, I actually went to a tribal college in northwestern Montana called Salish Kootenai College, and where I received an associate's degree in Native American studies. And as part of that, I took a couple of forestry classes because they have a forestry program. And then for personal reasons, I really wanted to come back to Oregon. And then the process of making that choice, I learned that, in fact, Oregon State University has the top ranked forestry program in the nation. And so that really sort of solidified my newfound love and interest in going to forestry school. So I went to undergraduate at Oregon State and graduated with a bachelor's degree in forest management. Went on and did some other stuff. I worked for a few years before determining that I wanted to go back and get my master's. So I did that in the early 2000s, got my master's degree in apply uh, agricultural and resource economics. Um, did the same thing where I worked for a few years after I finished before I decided to go back and get my PhD. I got my PhD in applied economics with a minor in forest resources. So my degree program was all economics, but I actually sat once again in the College of Forestry for my research and um, where my advisor worked. Wow, how many years of schooling is that like in total? <laughs> in total, that's a great question. Well, two years for my associates. Um, probably a year and a half of just, you know, like trying to figure out what I wanted to do at a community college before I, before I got my associates. Three years to then to finish my bachelor's because I had a lot of core classes, but because I was moving into forestry, there's a lot of very specific field-based classes that you need to get. Um, three years for my master's and four or five years for my PhD. So I don't actually want to do the math because that sounds just like a way too much schooling. Um, but I was, I was fortunate enough to, number one, absolutely love my undergraduate program and, and be well supported through scholarships. And then for my graduate programs, be well supported through teaching and research assistantships and fellowships. So that's kind of what made it all possible. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's, that shows like a lot of perseverance. That's like a lot of schooling to go through. Um, can you describe now like your work and occupation after you got out of school? Sure. So when I finished my PhD, I actually got a job as an assistant professor out at the University of Maine, 
So I moved out to Maine uh, and I was there for about five years when a position opened up out here and I came back to Oregon in 2020 as an assistant professor of forest policy. So basically since I finished, I've been in a professor role. And what that means is I do about half my time in teaching and about half my time in research. So I teach mostly, mostly so far in my career, I've taught college level seniors. I teach, I've taught typically forest management or forest economics or forest policy. And then um, I also teach graduate students and I advise graduate students, which means that they come to get their master's or their PhD, and I help them define their research and move them through the process. And so that's about half of my job. The other half of my job is doing my own research. And so I do a lot of research basically on the intersection of humans and forests. I'm really interested in, for example, um, how rural youth navigate the economy and their futures when they live in forest dependent places, then we have a lot of those here in the state of Oregon. Um, I'm really interested in how people make decisions on private lands about how they manage their forests and how, what the role of the state and what the role of regulations are in influencing that. So those are sort of some of the topics that I research. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what you mentioned the classes that you teach, it was like forest economics and then what was the, what were the other two? Forest management and forest policy. Although now at Oregon State, so far I just teach forest policy. That makes sense, yeah. What are the, what's the difference between like forest economics and forest policy and like all of that? Like, I know I, I'm not, I haven't taken the classes. So <laughs> I, I, I just, I feel like, yeah, I just don't know what the difference is. Well, it's a great question. And there's actually a lot of overlap. So forest uh, economics is just really about optimal decision-making for trees and stands. It's really about how, because most private landowners are motivated by markets for their, um, for their forests, right? It's really about how determining when best to harvest a tree or not harvest a tree. And it's fundamental. That's kind of what it's all about. Forest management is a little bit broader. That's really about how do we take what we know about biology and ecology and the way that trees grow and all the super cool things they do, how do we combine that with the laws and regulations that tell us what we can and can't do with the market incentives that are out there? How do we determine holistically what is best for a forest given all of those contexts? And then forest policy is really just a deep dive into <laughs> rules and regulations and voluntary programs. There's a lot of voluntary programs out there that impact how people make decisions about their forest land, but there's also just a lot of rules and regulations for private landowners. And then in terms of forest policy, when we talk about public lands and Oregon, you know, 60% of our forests are publicly owned. They're either owned by the federal government, mostly by the federal government, but also some by the state and the counties. Um, those forests are managed very differently. They're not managed as in such a market-driven fashion as private forests. And so when we talk about forest policy on public lands, we're really talking about what are the laws and regulations coming down from Congress, coming down from the legislature that guide how those forests get managed. Yeah, that makes sense. I, and I could talk about that. Like that could be a whole nother podcast. I'm in AP environmental science right now. And it's so interesting to me. Um, <laughs> but anyways, I'm going to get back to your career path. Um, so during your career, what have been some of your proudest moments and highlights and accomplishments so far? 
It was such a great question. It's so hard, I think, sometimes for people to talk about what they're proud of, right? I mean, it just, it can always be a challenge. But I will say, oddly enough, I think the proudest I was was when I finished my undergraduate degree, um, way more so than the later degrees. And that's because when I started my um, undergraduate program, I was a single parent of a baby. And so he was three when I graduated from, from Oregon State. And so that to me was just a really big turning point. It kind of represented, I think, you know, when he was born, I had, I had a hard decision to know what to do because um, I didn't have a college degree or anything like that. And it was, it was tough going back to school at that time. So to me, that graduation represented like a real accomplishment of, um, and coming out of forestry school too. I mean, I really, I so loved that degree program, it meant so much to me as a person. And so to be able to stand there with my three-year-old and, and recognize that I had done it um, was really important to me. Yeah, that's very impressive. <laughs> like that's a, that is a very big accomplishment and you should be proud of it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so I, you mentioned that you research like um, the intersection between humans and forests. Um, so could you, and I think that specifically sometimes you you talk about like gender and forests and, and, and gender diversity in forestry. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that and why you're passionate about that? Absolutely. Well, it's really, really easy for me to talk about why I'm passionate about that. <laughs> and that's because when I started uh, my undergrad in forestry, about in, in terms of like um, the traditional forestry program, so forest management or forestry or forest operations or forest engineering. When I started it in the late 90s, about 10% of the students were women. And only one of my professors was a woman. And she was so instrumental in helping me feel like I belonged in that program because not only was she a woman, she was also a fellow parent. And her kids were just a few years older than mine. And for me, I just, it was so clear to me that having her presence there made such a difference in how I felt like I could navigate that field, that that has become just really important to me now. Um, I don't, I don't know how I would have made it. I mean, I loved my forestry education, don't get me wrong. And I, I, most of the time was really happy. I had great friends, a great cohort a great group of people, but sometimes it is difficult when there's just no representation, when there's no people who look like you or who, who can show you just by virtue of being there that this is a path that's open to you. And so that, you know, that was really obvious to me at the time. And then when I started my job as a professor at the University of Maine, I was talking with a friend of mine, um, a fellow faculty member who is also a woman, and we just started summing up the numbers of our forestry students out there and we're like, they're like 10% women. This is 20 years later. We were both in undergrad together at Oregon State, coincidentally, and then we both were faculty members together at the University of Maine. So we had this really clear shared experience that we could talk about. And we were just looking around thinking where where are all the women? And we had one year where nobody, no woman graduated with a forestry degree. And we knew when that cohort started that there had been several women. And so we really started to think about 
why are we losing women in forestry and what can we do to improve this? And so that has become just a really big part of what I'm passionate about is trying to create a space where forestry is accessible for everyone. It's a, it's a profession and a field that means a lot to me. And I think it's really exciting and wonderful. And I don't want people to not do it just because they feel like they don't look like Paul Bunyan. So I, that has just become um, an ongoing, an ongoing, I don't know, hope of mine. And in the process of doing that, we actually started a group uh, specific called SWIFT out at the University of Maine, specifically to support women and non um, and other gender minorities, and just to create space to feel safe to share experiences, but mostly really to share strategies. It was really focused on positive strategy and capacity building among all of us. And we ended up writing a journal article about that that is probably my favorite paper that we ever got to write um, about supporting gender diversity in university forestry education programs that was published in the Journal of Forestry in 2020. Um, and the best part about that whole effort and about writing that paper is that people were so excited about that idea. People would call us up or email us all the time and be like, what are you doing up there at Maine and how can we do it here? And so we had so many conversations with other people who are like, we could start a group like that for graduate students, or we could start a group like that for undergraduates. And we've even had in industry, people in the industry thinking about how can we do this in a company, in a corporate company, you know? And I think that there's some really transferable lessons from what we did that I really, I hope, you know, someday, maybe in 20 years, we'll have an impact and we'll kind of start ticking that needle upwards in terms of who, who gets to be a forester. Yeah, that, that is a very cool, um, you know, journal to, to be able to be a part of. Um, it's, it's interesting because like, it feels like there's like almost this paradox where like, there's not enough women in forestry. And then the women that are in forestry are like, well, there's no women here. And then they don't graduate. And then there's still no women. And so more women come in and they're like, well, there's no women here. Um, exactly. So, yeah, it seems exactly. like a difficult situation to tackle, but it seems like you've done a lot of research in that area. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Tori. That's exactly like, where do we start? Like, how do you, how do you break that cycle? You know, and, mm -hmm. and I think really the next step is, is going younger, right? Is getting more young girls really excited about natural resource careers, careers out in the woods, um, careers outside. Like you're an environmental science student. Um, you know, you, you probably share a love of the outdoors and that has motivated you in terms of what you wanna do. So how do we just show that that's possible to kids younger and younger and younger? Cause we need them, we need them to get passionate about it early on. I mean, I grew up in the woods and so I just spent all my time in the woods but I didn't even know what being a forester was or that you could be a forester until I was 20 years old and met someone who worked for the forest service. So even though I grew up in that environment, I didn't know that was a career option. And I, I don't really know how to do that <laughs> with my job, but I think that that is a really critical next step. Yeah, and I'm gonna jump around my question sheet here a little bit because this question is very relevant um, to what you just said. But a lot of young women in male-dominated fields struggle with feeling like an imposter. Um, 
can you like kind of speak to that a little bit and like your challenges with imposter syndrome and how you've dealt with it? Uh, yeah, I would say it's such an ongoing battle in every, in every aspect. I mean, every time you switch jobs or you get a promotion or you move to a new level, it all comes flooding back. Uh, my main way of dealing with it, to be perfectly honest, is I have my, my network of amazing women and we support each other constantly. We talk about how we feel. We talk about feeling like that. We, we intentionally promote each other and support each other's decisions. Um, you know, we just kind of give each other that little emotional boost. To me, that's been the most effective thing is just cultivating that network um, and sharing those feelings because it just, you just don't feel so alone then. And I think the sneaky thing about all that is if, if you're just sitting with that in your brain and you're all alone, it can feel very real you can be, you can feel, it can feel very real that you don't know what you're doing and you don't fit in and you don't belong. But if you talk about those and people say, what are you talking about? You're doing great. It, it helps to kind of just pull you back from thinking that that's the only reality out there. Um, and so to me, I think that's a, a really important piece of it. And, and part of the reason why we worked on Swift, you know, was to give people space to say, hey, I don't feel like I belong so that we can say, I understand and you do belong and we're here to 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 show you that you belong yeah i think that's really smart i i do think that it's a very universal experience to feel like you don't fit in especially as a minority um and like talking about it is like oh i'm not alone i don't i it it's not just me that feels this way like even this really smart person i know feels that way so yeah i think that's yeah smart yeah, especially when people that you look up to, or right, or that you that you think are doing this amazing job, when they say that to you, it has a lot of uh, a lot of power. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um. So, what in your career? What are some of your uh, future goals or things that you would like to accomplish? Oh, that's a great question. Well. There are some practical things that I would like to accomplish. Like, it, you know, as a, as a professor, we have kind of this weird um, tenure system where you have to get tenure <laughs> to keep your job. So that's a goal. <laughs> and then, but on the less boring side, you know, there's some, there's some research that I wanna do. I just wrapped up a, a research grant looking at rural youth in, we surveyed 2000 um, middle school and high school kids in Coos County, Oregon and Piscataquis County, Maine. and ask them about their future and what their goals are. And we really wanna continue that research and, and we wanna focus more on linking kids to natural resources professions and jobs and figuring out ways to do that in a way that's also mindful of the fact that in a lot of these really struggling places, kids have a lot of what we call adverse childhood experiences that makes it harder to navigate the job market um, so I'd like to keep working on those topics. I'd like to see all my students be successful and finish their degrees and get jobs. And, um, and I'd like to keep teaching. Um, other than that, you know, ultimately I'd love to walk in the door of PV Hall in 15 years and see a group of people 
that look like the US, <laughs> right? I'd love to just have PV Hall look just like, and not even Oregon, like the US. So I'd love to walk into a work environment that's diverse and exciting and where there's lots of new ideas being generated and, and where everybody feels like they have a voice and a role. Right, yeah. So did you, when you like first started schooling for forestry and stuff, did you know that you wanted to teach and like be, did you know that you wanted to like be an educator? I did not. I had no. <laughs> when I started my forestry degree, my, I was like, wow, I just learned I can make a living being in the woods. That was my focus. It was like, this is going to be my way to get paid to go spend my days in the wood. That sounded like the best gig I could ever dream of. Um, of course, it was a, it's a little bit more tricky than that. Um, I did have, I had kids and, you know, it becomes more difficult to be a field-based person when you have lots of other obligations and duties that are sort of inflexible. Um, but no, it took me a long, long time. In fact, I would say I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to do this job until I started it. <laughs> To be perfectly honest, when I was finishing my PhD, well, I guess it was during my PhD, um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to work at a community college or at a university, um, but I did the first time I taught was as a PhD student, and I really liked it, but until that point, it really wasn't on my radar at all, so kind of a surprise ending to someone who started wanting to just be in the woods and get paid for it, and now I spend most of my day interacting with other people in a classroom in an indoor setting. But I so love working with forestry students um, and college students. They're just a total blast. Um, and so that part to me is really rewarding. Yeah. What, what is it like to like be a working mom and, and like be teaching all these kids while also taking care of your own kid? <laughs> I will say being a mom is great prep for teaching. <laughs> That's how I look at it. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting, but to me, it just, it's always been such a part of my life that I don't, I don't really think about it too much. I had my second child while I was getting my master's degree. So, you know, I've kind of, I've, I've always had kids when I was both in school and, and now being a teacher. So to me, it's kind of fun because I mean, I, I feel like there's just a lot of the same skills in terms of, of being empathetic to what kids are going through and what people are going through and where they're coming from and the challenges that they're facing in their personal lives and certainly navigating COVID through all this, um, you know, which has just been so much work on everyone. Um, it, it, it's good to have that view, you know, from the perspective of what my son's going through when I think about the perspective of what my students are going through. So to me, it's been really useful to have both of those things. And the other nice thing is that um, having kids is really good at keeping you with work-life balance <laughs> because you really, you gotta sometimes just put down the computer or put down the papers and, and be as a family. And so sometimes that's kind of nice too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so for 
women that are looking to get into STEM fields, um, what do you think can be done to spread the word to women about STEM fields and like, hey, these exist and these are things that you can do, you know, it's, it's a field that you can go into. What do you think should be or can be done right now to kind of spread that word? You know, I think the best way for people to learn about it is the most, it's unfortunately the most labor intensive way, which is why I think it doesn't happen as often, but it's for companies and and agencies and everyone to get to the schools, to like just literally show uh, middle school and high school girls in particular that these are options. I just, it's just not something that you know about. If If your parents don't work in a STEM field or in a natural resource field, the odds that you're going to know that that exists as an option are pretty limited. And so it really becomes everyone who currently works in the field just has to go. And how are you going to connect with kids? I mean, we, so professionals tend to spend a lot of times doing things like going to professional meetings. Well, that's great. And then you're interacting with people who are already also part of the profession, right? So how do we, how do we make the leap towards letting those who haven't already made the choice know about it? Well, I think it really happens in the schools. Um, job fairs, those are great. Uh, they don't happen very often anymore. And when they do, you know, it might be, there might be one, say natural resources based job fair for a whole county. Well, not every school kid then gets to go. And if you go, there's so many people, it can be really intimidating. It can be really hard to get that one-on-one time. And I also think who the company sends matters, right? So if you want to attract a more diverse group to your company, you need to send people who look like the, (laughs) represent the people that you wanna bring in. Um, So I just, I see a real need for more direct outreach and engagement with schools and that takes time and that means that it takes money. And so, and everybody's busy and, you know, everybody has limited time. So it may, it's hard, but that's where I see the real benefit. Right. Yeah. No, I agree with that. We have a job fair once a year and the jobs are very limited. There's not usually like forestry jobs or anything. There's some environmental ones, but um, yeah, like you said, it's limited and, and usually it's a, it's a straight white man that's representing <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we have fantastic job fairs in the College of Forestry, because and, and we get a ton of employers who come. They're, they're speaking to students who are already in forestry school, and that's great. The reason why they're speaking with them is because they want to hire them right away, right out of forestry school. Um, so that works really well, but how do we get those folks to go to the high schools and say, and how do we get, you know, and say, hey, yeah, you got to go to college first, or maybe you do, maybe you don't. I mean, there's plenty, there's also community college programs, two-year community college programs that would enable you to be like a forest technician type thing. And so there are options, um, but I can see from the company perspective, it's easier for them to go talk with people who are about to graduate from a forestry school because then they can snap them up right away. But what we need is for them to go to the high schools and say, hey, you can have a career doing this. Right, yeah. Kind of that long-term investment kind of thing yeah exactly mm-hmm. so do you personally have any advice for women that are looking to follow a similar career path that you have um i think well my advice is just do it no i'm kidding <laughs> um uh 
I think that there's lots of ways that you can start to learn about it as a field. And actually, one of the great things about these days with social media is you can learn a lot. You can get exposed to a lot more than you used to be able to. There's like a great Instagram group called Oregon Women in Timber. Well, it's a great group. They have an Instagram called Oregon Women in Timber. Um, Like follow groups like that, seek them out just to kind of get a sense of what that career might look like. There are some fun conferences if you're interested in forestry, the Oregon Logging Conference. Anyone can go to that. Um, and it, even if giant machines aren't really your jam, it's still kind of cool to see all the companies and the groups and everybody who is engaged with that. We have a few high schools that do have forestry programs or some forestry classes that, that kids can take in high school. Um, and most importantly, I'd say, you know, reach out to Oregon State, come check out our College of Forestry in our beautiful new building and um, learn about the types of classes that we have. So I think any way to just get kind of involved, even if it's just getting a sense of what the landscape looks like. And then most importantly, I think if you really want to get interested in for, or if you're curious about forestry, it's just to go spend time in the woods, see if it really is your thing. I mean, if you, if you go out there and you find yourself in the woods and you just feel a sense of peace and contentment and love for what you see, it's probably a good sign that you might really like a natural resources-based field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is it pretty easy to like get, a, I guess like a tour of the forestry program at OSU or is that? Yeah, I mean, we have fantastic advisors um, and I think you could easily reach out to just any, any of our undergraduate coordinators. We have three departments in the College of Forestry um, and a variety of degrees from natural resources to uh, tourism, recreation and adventure leadership to forest engineering, which is like, you know, real, real engineering, road building, harvesting, forest management, all the way to renewable biomaterials. So the real chemical and structural side of wood science and what we do with wood products. So we really encompass the whole thing from the soil to, um, to the lumber or even, or even high-tech products apart even from lumber that come from wood. So yeah, it's, it get just, you know, there are on our website, you can find people to contact if you're interested in undergraduate programs. As I mentioned, some community colleges have two-year degrees like Umpqua Community College does. And so, um, and I think maybe Southwest Oregon Community College too, I'd have to double check. So there are lots of options to sort of dip your toe into it and see if it looks like something that would be of interest. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you for, for sharing those resources. Um, I have one last question for you um and it's just what do you like to do for fun in your spare time <laughs> that's a great question um I love to be in the woods I do not get in the woods nearly as often as I would like but that's kind of my a number one and then apart from that I spend a lot of time with my pets and a lot of time cooking and I really like quilting and knitting and watching sports yeah nice that's a good list I think that's a very balanced uh, group of activities. Well, thank you for um, coming on the podcast and letting me interview. I had a really good time and got some very good insight. Well, thank you, Tori. And thank you, Casey, for inviting me. It was really fun to be able to talk about these things. And I'm so glad that 
you all do this podcast and are really working to try and, and get more girls and women engaged in STEM. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Closing the Gap. If you like this show, subscribe on Spotify. You can also find us on Instagram at MVSTEMCTE, on Twitter at MidValleySTEM, and online at MidValleySTEM.org. Until next time, keep progressing.